this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath argentina's president elect javier milei a self described anarcho capitalist has threatened to disband his country's currency the peso and adopt the us dollar in its place now argentina has been grappling with runaway inflation for a long time now its inflation is currently above 300% and milei has argued that dollarization of the argentine economy will bring inflation down and usher in a stable climate favorable for investment and he is not the only one to make uh, such arguments so how exactly does dollarization work what are the risks it entails and what has been the experience of other countries such as ecuador and el salvador for instance which have already uh, gone through this whole dollarization process we unpack the entire dollarization debate in this episode of in focus and we have with us eminent economist professor cp chandrashekar with us cp welcome to in focus and thank you for your time thank you and uh, good to be here So, CP, uh, to start with a very uh, fundamental question, what exactly is uh, dollarization? At what point do people start sort of suggesting it as a solution for anything at all? Well, dollarization basically means that uh, there is uh, use of uh, a currency other than the domestic currency for both, uh, you know, both in terms of. Uh, a unit of ex- account in exchange you know, that is transactions are undertaken with the currency which is not a separate domestic currency and of course uh, that would also entail that uh, to the extent that the money is a store of value your wealth is also hold is also held in terms of uh, uh, a, a currency other than the domestic currency now of course you can have in some sense different levels of dollarization because you can have countries in which have their own currency but you could have either laws or uh, or tendencies outside the law which actually results in a situation where a significant amount of transactions in the holding of wealth in 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 you know in in, in another currency can occur and of course normally this tends to be in terms of what is uh, what has been for many many decades now the the principal reserve currency of the world which is the us dollar no uh, cp uh, just just to clarify one thing you said that there are different levels of dollarization and uh, they depend to some extent on uh, in what currency uh, the wealth is stored so does this mean there is a certain level of dollarization in india as well because a lot of uh, black money is held in you know in dollars or whatever uh, in in other countries you know in in in, in uh, cayman islands and you know those kinds of tax havens so and those money the through round tripping they make their way back to india would that count as some element of dollarization as it has to be an economy in which a significant amount of domestic transactions occur in in the dollar so for example if you take uh, cambodia after the war there was so much of uh, so called aid flowing into cambodia uh, you know much of the money much of the economic activity in cambodia was completely linked to the volume of aid which was coming in it was coming in dollars so cambodia was a completely dollarized economy even though it had its ostensibly had its own currency but that is because transactions on a regular or routine basis a significant share happens in terms of the dollar which in some sense uh, occurs when um, there is as i said either the law doesn't prevent it uh, beyond a point or the law is not implemented and there is a certain degree of absence of uh, certainty about um, 
the value, uh, the value in terms of its ability to be able to convert itself into material goods and assets of your own currency is uh, is uncertain, and therefore people move uh, to safety uh, by holding and transacting in other currencies. Now the thing is, you know, but when when we speak of dollarization in the sense that uh, you know Mela is speaking in in Argentina or you know countries like. Uh, Ecuador or El Salvador and and Panama and so on, there we are talking about a situation in which what you're saying is that there is a substitution, a complete substitution, even though, you know, to a certain extent, there's supposed to be segments of the economy even where there are transactions happening in in terms of uh, some kind of a domestic currency. But there's more or less a complete substitution of the domestic currency with the foreign currency, in this case, since we're speaking of dollarization, with the dollar. So that's that's so when, when the, the 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 current discussion, which has been generated by um, uh, Javier Malay's coming to power, I mean, meaning the election, is really that kind of a, a policy move. That do we completely substitute um, uh, the dollar? Because you know you can have other levels. Even Argentina, for example, uh, you know had had a currency board, which essentially means. That the amount of uh, domestic currency that you issue is linked to the amount of dollars which the central bank holds. So you are in some sense saying that the dollar becomes much more of an anchor than it would be in a country which uh, wants to, mean to retain monetary sovereignty. Uh, but when I say that there is, you can have different levels, you can have countries in which because of historical circumstances, the percentage of transactions which occurs using the dollar is so high that the, that, that is a currency which is likely to move to a greater extent than the domestic currency in that sense. Right. Anyway, before we come to the inflation uh, question, and I was just wondering again, uh, going back to the whole, how we understand dollarization, and you spoke about, you know, a substitution of your internal or domestic national currency with an external currency. So would you say that uh, Af- Greece, for example, after it became part of the European Monetary Union, it, the euro became, you know, its default currency. It doesn't have any control over the monetary policy, fiscal po- monetary policy in particular. So would that be an example? Would that be similar to dollarization, would you say? Well, you know, there's there's one difference there, and the difference there is, you see, because if you actually go in for dollarization of the kind that, let us say, El Salvador, Ecuador, gone in for, it basically means that there is that your own central bank doesn't have the right to issue currency. Okay, and uh, the point is, uh, but these are not countries which are part of some kind of a monetary union. Greece, on the other hand, was, was part of a monetary union. So it adopting the euro was essentially an acceptance that the European Central Bank is the central bank of Greece as well, not just of okay. the other European countries. But Greek, but Greece in itself does not have a Greek Central Bank, right? So isn't that a similar kind of situation? But 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 that way, in essence, you know, most of the countries in the European Union don't have their central banks. But you wouldn't, you know, speak of it in terms of them having, you know, you know, completely given up their currencies. Uh, uh, because of the fact that uh, you still have the drachma and uh, you know in, i mean you, you had the drachma at one point of time and now you have the euro so you if you go to italy you have the euro isn't it so it's but the euro the the central bank of, of italy is the european central bank so so uh, the point is however what it really means is you don't have the ability to be able 
to issue your own currency at the national level and to adjust the value of your currency relative to other currencies, which became Greece's major problem, that it essentially in a context of balance of payments difficulties and when it was, you know, in, when it needed to sort of maybe bolster export competitiveness, if it had its own currency, it could devalue its currency because when you devalue your currency, it basically means that the prices of your exports in terms of foreign currencies comes down. Okay, And if that happens, you obviously become more competitive. Now, you lose that right. You cannot do that because of the fact that your currency, you cannot devalue your euro as opposed to others' euro because it's a common euro. Whereas here, what you're essentially saying is that you're, you're uh, in some sense, you know, what happens to the amount of currency which is circulating in your economy is is being determined by a central bank with which you have no relationship. You can still say that it's a subordinate relationship which Greece has relative to maybe Germany within the European Central Bank structure or architecture. But at least in principle, it's supposed to be a central bank for everybody. Whereas here, you're not really, it's not, it's not even in principle. So you're basically saying that there is, uh, in terms of the right to issue the currency that rests with the central bank, of the, I mean, with the Federal Reserve, and uh, you're giving up your right to actually be able to issue currency. Right. So coming to this uh, whole uh, justification in terms of uh, controlling inflation, I mean, in India, we've got like six, five, six, whatever percent inflation. And if it goes up by a couple of points, it becomes a big issue. But in Argentina, it's like 300 uh, it was 359%, I think, last month. And it's like mind-boggling. So in this kind of a scenario, maybe an extreme uh, step like junking your currency and shutting down your central bank as Milay wants. Is that uh, something uh, viable or, or wise, do you think? Well, you know, why, you know, why don't we like inflation in general and why don't we like uh, hyperinflation, which is, of course, a very severe problem. Besides the huge disruption it creates, and it shouldn't have been allowed to you know, reach the stage it has, you're basically saying that the reason you don't like it is, in a sense, um, it has certain consequences for uh, the mass of the population, which is not in a position to be able to ensure that it inco its incomes keep pace at all with the rise in, in prices. And of course, if it's hyperinflation, they're basically saying that there's a huge squeeze which occurs in terms of the ability of, of uh, citizens, uh, you know, or citizens who are not, uh, in some sense, who's... Uh, earnings are not indexed to the price level, you're, you're actually squeezing, squeezing their consumption. You're actually, you know, having, you know, it's, it's a kind of profit inflation which squeezes their consumption. And when it reaches hyperinflation stage, you're basically saying the whole economy is destabilized. Now, obviously, therefore, we are not for hyperinflation. Okay. It should not be allowed to occur. We should have solutions. We should be able to deal with it at an early stage. And it's a complex issue why certain economies get trapped in it and this tends to be much more in the Latin American context and so on. But uh, the point is, does actually going in for dollarization, you know, offer an answer? Well, it possibly does offer from the experience which we've had in other economies, it offers an answer in terms of reigning in inflation. Now, it reigns in inflation because of the fact that the ability of people to be able to access the dollar or the ability of the domestic central bank to actually expand money supply in keeping with the increase in demand for money, which of course would be related to the movement in the price level. 
that that doesn't exist anymore. So you're, you're in some sense saying that you're going to hugely squeeze consumption and, of course, investment demand in order to be able to bring prices under control. It's not, it's not just that, you know, if you give up one currency and hold the dollar, because, you know, supposing, you know, supposing you're an oil importing country, by the way, you know, two countries like Ecuador and El Salvador had some access to oil revenues, not, not always as, you know, a large amount, but they did have, which does make a difference. But supposing you're an oil importer and international oil prices go up, you could have be, you could be a dollar, dollarized economy, but you still, your dollar price of your oil in your domestic market will go up. And you're basically in some sense saying that therefore there is that if you have, you know, cost pressures pushing up in trade, pushing up prices, and you're really talking about a situation in which there isn't enough foreign exchange earnings for you to be able to import commodities to hold the price level. So supposing you have a bad harvest, I mean, okay, so if you're a dollarized economy, you say it doesn't matter, I'll import from abroad. But you're presuming that people have enough dollars to be able to in some sense, uh, quickly undertake this kind of replacement, uh, you you are going to be in a situation where you can say that part of the way in which this occurs is not because of the fact that international prices uh, now begin to influence domestic prices in a far bigger way, which they do, but it also is because of the fact that you are in a position to be able to squeeze consumption and investment. So the so the sort of uh, the implications for income growth and income growth particularly among those people who are not able to easily access the, the dollar incomes which now the economy is generating, you know, is being squeezed. So uh, it also has its deep negative consequences. Like what What consequences? I mean, there, there are reports that Argentinians, and because you know, it, it's usually the case in Latin America, as you said, uh, that this hyperinflation is not limited to one uh, country. There are a lot of uh, Argentinian citizens, apparently, according to reports, who have their uh, savings in dollars, for instance. They, uh, you know, they, they accumulate dollars. And that's one of the reasons, I think, Milai... Which, which, which citizens, isn't it? Yeah. In any case... This is the point I said about partial dollarization. If you have if you have relaxation of what are called capital controls, the ability of residents to be able to convert the domestic currency into foreign currency and use it to hold assets abroad, which, for example, is now possible to a significant extent in India. And any Indian citizen is supposed to be in a position to be able to convert up to $250,000 in you know, rupees into $250,000 in a year and take it abroad. So if you're a family of four, you can take abroad a million dollars every year. Now that is, you know, that basically means that you're giving people the ability to be able to hold dollars. And I'm sure a lot of people hold the dollar because of the fact that the rupee has been depreciated. But you're still not in a world in which you're saying a large part of your transactions is undertaken in terms of dollar. That is because of the fact that you're saying that, you know, if I move to actually substituting my currency with the dollar, then one, the state doesn't have fiscal freedom. Two, there is no mon domestic monetary policy so that you can't keep issuing currency. The amount of currency or dollars which is issued, of course, is determined globally by the by the Federal Reserve, the, the United States Central Bank. And you're in a position, you're not in a position to be able to adjust the value of your currency relative to a foreign currency, which would mean that supposing I say that listen, I want to get more dollars, so I'm going to devalue my currency. If you devalue your currency, obviously what's going to happen is there's going to be domestic inflation. Because pump prices tend to go up when you devalue your currency because imports become more expensive. 
So you're basically saying that you give up all of this and partly international prices would influence your domestic price level and partly you're going to squeeze consumption and investment in order to get there. So now the thing is, if you happen to be in a desperate situation, you allowed yourself to get you into a desperate situation and you say, I want to dollarize, that's a debate which must occur. But the, but the point is, you know, it's, 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 it's actually something which you're undertaking because you're in a crisis and you don't seem to have a domestic way out not because of the fact that in itself is a good thing. Right. And uh, Millay has also proposed uh, the abolition of the central bank. So dollarization and letting go of your central bank, I guess they necessarily go together? Yeah, you can you see the point is, what does the central bank do? The central bank, one, is it determines money supply. Okay, It has the right to determine money supply in, ever since modern central banking came in. Now, obviously, you cannot determine money supply because... You've basically taken some other country's currency as your currency. So you can't issue notes. You don't have the right of note issue. Secondly, what does the central bank do? It actually tries to stabilize the, the, the currency. And the way in which it stabilizes the currency is basically to, you know, if you don't have a pegged exchange, I mean, if you don't have a, a fixed exchange rate, then you try to actually adjust or peg the exchange rate by open market, what are called open market transactions, which means that the central bank, you know, goes into the market and either increases the supply of foreign currency or buys up foreign currency in order to be able to control or stabilize the domestic currency. You can't do that because there is no domestic currency. So that role of the central bank is gone. And finally, you know, there is this whole no notion that by adjusting the level of money supply, if at all you can do that, you would be in a position to be able to target inflation. And uh, how are you going to do that if you're actually in a situation in which Citizens have the right to access foreign exchange uh, if they've earned it, bring it from abroad, if they held it from abroad, whatever it may be. You really don't have even more, not that you would otherwise have significant influence of the money supply domestically, but you don't even have that much influence. So, yeah, all the functions of the central bank now cannot be undertaken. Stabilizing the currency, issuing new currency, issuing you know, additional currency, domestic currency. Serving as the lender of last resort, if your banks get into difficulties, they can go to the overnight window of the I mean, liquidity problems. They can go to the overnight window of the central bank and borrow because the central bank is in a position to be able to always give you domestic currency. But that won't be true anymore of the central bank because it doesn't issue any currency of its own. So if an Argentinian uh, bank were to sort of uh, fail, then uh, they would have no option but to let it fail. They wouldn't be able to bail it out is what you're saying. Or, or find a foreign buyer to come and buy it up and uh, build it out. Okay. So you don't have to shut down. You can, you can actually have a new owner who then puts in the money to revive the bank and make the profits from it if you get profits subsequently. Right. Okay. So can you uh, talk a little bit about these countries which have uh, gone in for dollarization and, and how did they... Uh, sort of manage the challenges which you've outlined, you know, in terms of, you know, when you don't have a central bank, which can, you know, be this lender of last resort, bring about uh, some kind of stability through its monetary policy, all these things which you just mentioned. How did Ecuador and Panama and El Salvador uh, manage it? Because we do know that they they are mentioned as success stories of dollarization. Their inflation dramatically went down after dollarization. Panama, you know, has, has been with this for a very long period of time. So really, if you're talking about countries which chose to uh, dollarize, as it were, in, in more recent times, you're talking about, yeah, Ecuador is one country, El Salvador. I would say, you know, don't only look at the inflation rate. Let's go and, I mean, 
if you're if you're a country, let us say, which in 2000 or 2001 decided to dollarize, and we are now in 2023, so that's about two decades. And if you look at all the other evidence, I mean, you know, many of these countries hardly have a manufacturing sector. They hardly have a, you know, most of them are predominantly service economies. They benefited to a certain extent with some oil. As I said, some they are not oil rich, but you know, Ecuador still has reserves which it can exploit if it if it's in a position to be able to find the resources to make the investment or find somebody or change its its position and get somebody to come and make the investment. So you basically are saying that if you look at you know, uh, let's say in, to, at, at the lowest level, if you look at economic growth, if you look at economic diversification, if you look at uh, you know the the pace of poverty reduction. If you look at uh, uh, you know the headcount ratio, poverty ratio. If you look at the uh, the extent of social deprivation in terms of access to you know health and education and so on. I mean these are not great. Uh, I mean what in what sense are they? they but success- didn't Ecuador uh, didn't Ecuador have some success in poverty reduction under Rafael Correa yeah, and all that? Yeah, or? but it was under Rafael Correa and that many Latin American countries had and that. Oil mattered for that. Okay, that was the period of the of the commodities price boom, and not just oil. I mean, many many countries. I mean, even even countries exporting copper and other things during the what was uh, you know called the commodity super cycle, which lasted for a decade and a half or more uh, till about twenty ten. Or you you basically had uh, countries were in a position which, if they were exporters of these commodities, which were uh, at the sort of you know at, the, at at that end of international trade where they were benefiting in terms of significant terms of trade gains a lot of countries uh, i mean including brazil and other countries use the benefits of that to launch on welfare policies but uh, we know that once that went i mean that benefit of the commodity price boom um Partly, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not an expert on all this, but partly people attribute the to to the end of that pink wave. This, 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 of course, a new, new, uh, not as strong, but a new pink wave underway now. But that end, end of that pink wave was, uh, which actually adopted progressive policies, at least on the welfare front, as having been linked to the commodity price boom. So, I mean, I wouldn't attribute that to dollarization, you know. Right. So you would say that dollarization uh, would uh, sort of more or less make it uh, not uh, not really encourage uh, investment, as Milay would argue. Well, the yeah, the way I would look at it is that listen, I mean, you know, you you can either say that you need a certain degree of uh, economic policy sovereignty, which basically means you need sovereignty. In monetary and fiscal policy, if a country is to be in a position to be able to move out of what most of these countries have, which is a subordinate position in an unequal world order, if you want to move out of that, you need a state which has a certain degree of monetary and fiscal sovereignty. And uh, if you're giving that up, you know you're actually going back to a colonial situation. You know, like if you take India under colonial times, when the world economy was in boom, India was in boom. When the world economy was in recession, India was in recession. And of course, India's boom did not give it as much as the boom which the, which the United Kingdom would have got at that point of time. Uh, but basically, the process was the same. You know, India was a primary commodity exporter, and uh, if uh, you know if there was a global boom, the primary commodity prices went up. This actually put a little bit of incomes in, in the hands of primary commodity producers who generated demand. 
to the extent that there's taxes, particularly taxes on trade. When trade prices go up, taxes of government goes up. So it's in a position to be able to spend more, even though it doesn't have fiscal sovereignty in a, in a sense of being proactive to to borrow and, and undertake large expenditures. So you have you have some kind of a boom. But the point is, the moment uh, the world economy tends to slow, it affects you much more. So you're basically saying that to be a dollarized economy is in some sense not to be a national economy. Right. I mean, of course, that's it's, it's very strange, uh, uh, this erosion of uh, sovereignty or at least a policy which would entail a so erosion of national sovereignty over fiscal and monetary policy is coming from a so-called right-wing uh, populist uh, figure who tend to be high on nationalism. Uh, right. One one uh, allied question I have for you, CP, on this entire hyperinflation scenario, not which is not restricted to Argentina. Is does this have anything to do with the post 2008-2009 financial crisis phase where there was this uh, tons of easy money coming into markets everywhere? Is that linked to this entire uh, and, and and an area of low uh, interest rates? Is that is this hyperinflation related to that phenomenon? You know, let's put it this way. I mean, you know. Uh, you know, we've, we've had, I mean, Brazil, for example, had hyperinflation, um, you know, earlier than the period we are speaking of, the period after 2008. Uh, so I wouldn't say that it's only after 2008 that this happened. But I do think that when you have um, a kind of policy in which, the, you know, that, that supposing you're a country, okay, let me put it this way, supposing you're a country which had only limited access to foreign exchange. You had a certain amount of export earnings. There's a certain amount of whatever you want to call it, you know, credit or foreign aid or whatever it is you could, you know, access in the form of loans from the international, you know, the the bilateral and multilateral sources. And there's uh, and then the private market and uh, and there's a certain amount of money which you get as foreign direct investment. Now, as far as all of that foreign exchange is concerned, which is, you know. What you can earn from exports is in substantial measure determined by what what is this, what is your position in the global market and what's happening to the world market. How much is given to you in the form of loans and credit and for a long period of time, you know, most developing countries would not get credit from the international private financial system. The only credit they got was from either multilateral banks like the World Bank and the ADP or from bilateral sources, government to government credit. And therefore, and, and the amount of foreign investment which comes is determined by investor interest. So if you're in a situation like that, and supposing a government just starts spending, okay, and it it starts spending in a context in which, let's say, there's a there's there's a domestic supply constraint. Let's say there's a there's a food supply constraint. And you know, you you're a monsoon dependent country. So first of all, the rate of growth of food production is not very high. You, perhaps you haven't implemented land reforms to ensure that. And of course, you'll have, uh, you know, regular cyclical patterns. You know, some you have some bad monsoons, some indifferent monsoons, some good monsoons. So supposing you have a, a supply constraint. Now, if you have a supply constraint and the government then keeps trying to pump prime the system at that point of time, then what would happen is you'd have very high domestic inflation. Okay. And you cannot curb this inflation beyond a point by importing from abroad. Because the amount of foreign exchange you have access to is determined from outside, as I mentioned. It depends on how much you can, how much you can actually, you know, extract out of the global market for your exports, how much you get in terms of uh, credit from bilateral and multilateral sources, 
how much you can get uh, you know in so the only way you can uh, bring uh, the inflation down is by boosting your uh, domestic productivity and which you can't do because you don't have the money for investments no it depends upon how you're using your money in the first instance if you're actually using your money let's say if you're a, if you're an agricultural constrained economy one of course you need to have some institutional change but along with that institutional change you'll have to make investments in irrigation drainage flood control uh, extension services and so on so for to increase your productivity so but if on the other hand if i spend all of my money uh, i don't know you know you know building infrastructure which is you know which doesn't seem to because i think that you know having more airports in some places for whatever reason i think and etc etc but don't do very much about your agriculture then you can run up against a supply constraint and if you run up against a supply constraint you would have inflation so you basically need a policy which which essentially says that listen i need to ensure that i am in some sense given the amount of foreign exchange i have access to i need in some sense to be able to launch on a strategy which will relax my supply constraints while i try to increase demand in the system through generation of employment to, you know through public expenditure and the incentives that creates for private expenditure etc so you're basically saying that if if you then which countries would choose not to do this countries which would choose not to do this either have to be countries in which inflation is not a problem not a problem because of the fact that see its inflation results in social discontent so if you are a democratic society it is a problem but if you are an authoritarian system maybe it's not so much of a problem inflation would not be a problem if on if i actually think that i have you know well pretty large even if not unlimited access to foreign exchange so if my white wheat prices go up i'll just import wheat and stabilize domestic prices with imports because i'll just supply independent of my domestic production now if you if you get yourself into this belief that you can always access foreign exchange then you tend to ignore dealing with domestic supply constraints undertake large expenditures in the belief that if at all i need to do it i can control inflation by borrowing money from the international system and in fact a lot of my expenditure is financed by borrowing abroad my state expenditure so 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 there is there is a logic to this to this system where uh, at the point of time when you begin to realize that your reserves are running down and you know foreign creditors are not willing to roll over their debt or give you new debt then you begin to generate this inflation which is not easily controlled because of the context which in which you are right i mean uh, it's it's very clear that uh, dollarization is not going to be the kind of quick fix uh, which yeah weir mile has been talking about and i also really appreciate the point you made about how this is necessarily uh, going to end up making your uh, country a subordinate economy i mean if trump wanted america first and uh, whoever does dollarization is going to be like second uh, you know argentina second and and so on thank you so much uh, cp for uh, really breaking down this is sort of intriguing uh, topic for our listeners thank you so much it was a pleasure talking to you thank you thank you it's good to be here in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon